Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 76 movies, one cage. This is episode 78, Pay the Ghost, from 2015. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us, a returning guest, one of our favorites, Chris Mattiello. Hello, Chris. Oh, favorites. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. You guys are some of my favorites. This is the happiest podcast of all. (laughs) Until we get to the movie. Well, the movie's so happy, too. It's about, I mean, what's not to love about a kid who gets abducted on Halloween and gets dragged to the underworld, and then his father has to go to the underworld to bring him back? I mean, that's that's just a happy movie. A regular Dante's Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> it's happy for Cage Club standards, I suppose. This movie is weird. Like, this movie is sort of... I was describing it sort of like if Knowing and 8mm and maybe also The Wicker Man had a baby. Like, if they all got together and they jumbled up their DNA and spit it out, we sort of get this. The Cage hasn't really done too many horror movies. I guess the only really... I don't know. I mean, 8mm is not classified as horror. I'm not sure if The Wicker Man would be. Maybe... But this is like a real sort of his attempt at kind of like a Halloween horror movie. And it's um, not great, but it's it's OK. But it's OK. It's kind of it, I love the first 20 minutes. I really enjoy. I'll see that. And then the end is kind of cool. It's just the middle where the where they're just looking for the kid that it drags out. Yeah, it's kind of just like every horror movie you've ever seen mashed into one. Like it's got the DNA of so many different films that we all know and love. I guess that's kind of the distracting thing. I've said this before. I think I mentioned this. Oh, I did. I mentioned this on the um, Drive Angry one about how it always called back to Terminator. I was like, stop reminding me of better movies that I could be watching. And this was so much worse for it than that was. Yeah, I definitely got that vibe. I think it hurt it more than it helped it because it felt like they couldn't really settle on what sort of cliche they wanted to use. So they kind of tried to use as many as possible. (laughs) And it ended up, I think, doing a disservice to the story they tried to tell. It got way off the rails for me to the degree where I just kind of got a bit too lost there. But the ending is great. You know, they say they win you in the end and they've done they've done their job. Right. And boy, that ending. I'm just kind of glad that after a few straight to DVD movies or some recently that haven't been great, like we weren't really crazy about The Runner or Dying of the Light or Left Behind. Like we had a couple movies in a row that were just sort of tough to get through. At least there's things in here to enjoy. It's Cage doing weird Cage things. We finally get Cage as a cowboy. (laughs) Here you go. Your Western Cage fulfilled him in a cowboy outfit. I mean, that's, I mean, this might be the closest we ever get, but at least we got that. No hat, though, but I'll take what I could get. I said draw, partner. Dad, you're a cowboy. I couldn't find my cowboy hat, but boy, you guys were great. There's some fun to be had. I feel like, you know, going to Chris's point, if you've never seen a horror movie before, you might really like this one. But the jump scares are so predictable, like the gross-out things are so predictable. I think the only thing I've really maybe never seen before is the woman whose insides are all burnt up. But I feel like I've seen similar stuff, but that's just kind of like a cool-ish touch. There's just a lot of things that we've seen before kind of jumbled all into one. I just sort of appreciate it because it's Cage doing it as opposed to just any other actor. Yeah, and he's he's giving it his his cage best. I mean, you guys can probably speak to this more than I can. I mean, you've seen all of them, but he seems to always try. Even if the movie is just a complete turd, he's putting in some serious work in his movies, and Cage is still Cage in this movie. He's not giving a lot, but he makes chicken salad out of chicken shit. Yeah, I agree there. You know, even in the, the last couple films, I've been looking for him. He hasn't really shown up too too strong. Dying of the Light, he was there, you know, playing older than his age. But here, I definitely feel like he's diving into the material. Like, we've seen him be a professor before, but I feel like this is his best version, right? Like, really impassioned when he's reading the Halloween story to his students and everything. I thought that was some great stuff. We get really good sort of scared Cage later on. We've seen him not really know or understand what's going on and be confused a lot, and I think this is one of his better versions of that. We even get, like, Cage the investigating detective version, which doesn't really fly too well in this film, but he's there, and I agree He's definitely working in this movie. What kind of blew me away about this movie is that it starts out in New York in 1679. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, I knew, so I sort of assumed, like, I knew before we watched this that it was set in New York and was filmed in Toronto to look like New York, as one is to do. However, I thought, I just sort of assumed it would be in New Orleans and it would be set in sort of modern day. 
And we kind of get like a New Orleans-y vibe when there's the Halloween parade. I think it's kind of the closest to New Orleans that New York is ever going to get. I was just like, how are we 400 years in the past? Like, what is going on here? Like, that's something that sort of really threw me for a loop and was kind of cool. But before you're even able to really process what's going on, you're just shuttled to modern day. And eventually we come back to it, but it's just sort of a weird little glimpse into the past. Yeah, that bugged me going into this, too, because as, you know, a born and bred Northeast NYNJ libtard, I know New York pretty well, and uh, it just never felt like New York to me. And I had that same reaction. It's like, wait, how are we going back this far into New York? It, it, it all seemed like it was written for a different place, like maybe New Orleans, like you said, and they just got Toronto. See, guys, I, I kind of loved this and kind of hated it. I'm just a sucker for this sort of building this like mythology right from the start with these flashbacks and stuff. And it was way out of left field. And like, I don't know, I love just like that early settler pioneer history. And I kind of bought the fact that there were Celtic pagan settlers here on Manhattan before they bought the island from the Native Americans or right around that time, perhaps. I'm not sure, but I'd like this setup. The problem with it is I called it right from here. Like it let me know exactly what was the big mystery. So, I mean, it kind of starts with these kids huddled in a basement of a cabin and they hear their mother upstairs getting murdered by town folks or something. So immediately I kind of figured out what the whole ghost story was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm not sure that you necessarily need to know or like figure it out. I don't know that it actually really wants to hide the ghost story. I think it's just sort of content with building a world around it, which is kind of cool. Kid ghosts all over the movie. They're just like creepy things popping up from here and there. I don't know that it's necessarily trying to be like a big twist ending. I don't know that I guessed the ending, but I also sort of wasn't trying to. I was just kind of along for the ride and just seeing what kind of weird stuff they were going to throw at us. I just kind of like this idea of something in the past being set up. They mentioned Sleepy Hollow in the film. It gave me sort of a vibe like that, just this American fable. You know, I'm definitely just grasping for straws in this movie and right here at the beginning. You're right. Like, it's not, I don't feel like it's set up to be a mystery, even though it is sort of like a mysterious thing that they just set up and, you know, we don't come back to until like halfway into the movie. I guess I just like the way they're tying the past and the present together, trying to. I just figured we were at a point now, as, you know, civilized, educated people in 2016, or I guess 2015, whenever this came out, that we knew that, like, Americans didn't burn witches. I thought we were past that by now, the whole witch-burning cliche, and then it just threw it right into that, and I just went, oh, movie... You really are as dumb as you look. I like how you just talk down to these movies. You're just, <laughs> you're just so condescending in these movies. Like, come on, movie, you're just stupid. This movie made uh, Drive Angry look like Citizen fucking Kane. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just funny how they didn't even need to incorporate the whole witches, witchcraft, burning at the stake stuff. It, it was sort of enough just that, you know, this was a, a mother who was murdered and taken away from her children that, like, it would make sense her her ghost would haunt the future city streets of where her dwelling once stood and kidnap children on Halloween. Like, I felt like that was enough. And then they just get, you know, like we were saying earlier, just like they pile on the cliche. When the boy eventually goes missing, he sort of contacts them in a poltergeist type of fashion through technology, things like that, you know. So I just feel like, oh, the, the witch stuff, it's like not necessary, but we're going to throw it on top because we're just, we're just, it's like a pile on. I guess we're not going like chronologically through the story and we can just throw it out there, right? Like this is a ghost that is a overprotective mother and is going to protect her children or some form of her children for eternity. They drop the ball by not really having the actual missing child's mother involved in the story. Yes. At all. It's all about, I mean, sure, Nick Cage obviously is the star here, but like thematically, doesn't that just make sense? If you're ripping off movies like this, you'd think like The Ring is a great example of a movie that ties the themes of the ghost to the themes of the parent. It's just there's no point to anything that's going on. There's nothing deeper. And ghosts and horror need something beneath the surface to scare you on a more psychological level than just bleh. I definitely agree with the mother role, you know, like they definitely missed out there. You know, I don't think, you know, at this point in Cage Club, I don't think we need to remind anybody that the female actor role, like, just doesn't get 
its fair share, you know? Like, they just don't get their due. And, like, this is just another situation where it feels, like, necessary. It just feels, you know, like, that maybe is what I was grasping at the whole movie is, like, why does this sort of feel off to me? And it's just, like, the better movie is the mother looking for the son, you know? If it's if it's a female ghost with mother looking for their children, like, I definitely agree with, with that comparison there. And it, it just feels like it, we, it has to be Cage because he's the big star here, but I kind of would have liked to see him in the supporting role, maybe. We have a very interesting actress playing the mother, the, the mom from The Walking Dead. I really like her. I think she's got sort of an interesting style about her, something unique, and it would have been very cool to have seen that story, but she gets sidelined multiple times in this movie. So I think that Sarah Wayne Callies, who plays Kristen, Cage's wife and the mother of Charlie in this movie, I think she's kind of made a career of being sort of pushed aside women. That Laurie was the possibility on The Walking Dead of this really interesting character and didn't really become much. She was also on Prison Break. She was the nurse or the doctor in the prison and sort of just became the love interest. Like, she's always just sort of there on the periphery. And I feel like she's probably a capable actress, but here really not given much to do. And in the middle of the movie, we have something that's happened a few different times in Cage Club, especially with these women characters. He goes to her, and he basically has, not like proof-proof, but he has like reasonable facts or like opinion, or he's telling her a story about like how he thinks that Charlie is back. She's like, no, 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 like he's gone, blah, blah, blah. And like, she's just shooting him down. You know, I don't know if the mom in that situation actually would, but I feel like it's just a way to sort of get us more on Cage's side, kind of, or just sort of present another obstacle. Like, I wish that they just teamed up there Mm. instead of waiting another like 10 minutes in the movie and then her coming around being like, well, you know, I saw a haunted scooter and now I'm on your side. There's just like wasted opportunities to get her involved earlier. And it's just weird. Like it's, it's not like she's learning a lesson. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's all strange. You guys are video game fans, right? Yeah. Any of you guys ever play the game Heavy Rain? No, but I know that this is similar in that you lose a kid. This game, or this movie also reminded me of Alan Wake, too, at least at the end. But Heavy Rain, I think, is a good comparison. The beginning is identical. The first half hour is almost exactly the same, to the point where it made me think this wasn't going to be a supernatural movie. Spoilers, it's not supernatural in Heavy Rain, but they don't really ever set it up that it is. That game's not that great, but I think I had different expectations just based on how beat-for-beat the beginning is. And uh, anyone who's played that game, I think, will see uh, how very, very similar it is. Straight down to the ten minutes of the protagonist screaming out the child's name. Yes, press X to Kevin or whatever it is. Um, I played the beginning of that game, and that also reminds me, and I was going to bring it up in the Left Behind episode, that I think it was that game maybe where the kid just, like, lets the balloon go. Is that that game? Is it, does that how it happens in the beginning or not? I believe that is it, because you're following the balloon through the crowd because you can't right. see the kid at a certain point. Yeah. And so in Left Behind, when all the kids get raptured, there's all these balloons that get let up into the top of the mall. And it's like, oh, like that's just ripping off of Heavy Rain too. Like, it's, it's kind of like a quote-unquote important video game because it did something different with its presentation and its style and its story. But I don't think it's really well known. And it's just weird to have two of the last like four or five Cage movies be so similar in ways to this game that probably not many people have heard of or played. All art is derivative. We are the hipsters now. (laughs) Might as well wrap it up. But this is another movie, and I guess, you know, considering all art is derivative, it also makes sense that all these Cage movies, especially these last, like, 10 or 15, are all kind of blending together. We have another Cage as father role. Once again, he's sort of an absentee dad, in a way, sort of more committed to his work than his family. He's got a loving wife who sort of loves him in spite of the fact that he's not around. He's got this needy son... He's Professor Cage again. All these things we've seen in movies lately, and they just sort of seem to be like, I can't imagine him being like, all right, now, like, what kind of dad am I playing now? Like, you know, it's like the same sort of role in all these movies, and they're like the surroundings are different, and the stories are different, and the, the motivating factors are different, but in all these movies, he seems to be like losing a kid and having to go find a kid. Like, it's, it's sort of weird how similar all these different stories are. Yeah, it's weird how similar the characters kind of are, too. Like, the only thing separating him from his character in Rage is that he's a professor, not an ex-mob enforcer, you know? But otherwise, I feel like he's reacting the same way he would. I I almost feel like he's just playing himself now to a degree. Maybe the way he would deal with this certain type of situation or react kind of in the way you see other actors just sort of the way people say they're playing themselves all the time. Like we, I never really got a sense that we were seeing Cage 
the person on screen. I always thought he was building a performance or a persona. But after the last couple movies, I'm starting to wonder if maybe we have <laughs> seen him just play himself one or two times before. We sort of know about Cage the actor, you know, in terms of the characters he plays, the process he goes through, the sort of the way he gets into character. But we don't really know about Cage the father, Cage the husband, and maybe these are all just, I don't know, it's just weird. He's got to be tapping onto something, right? I'm sure that every father, every parent can, can sort of relate to this story that like, would you literally like basically go to hell and try to get your kid back, even if it meant you possibly going to hell and staying there forever? And I feel like these are all sort of things that they're kind of base primal instincts or in a way that parents watching this can sort of relate in a way. But for a couple 25, 30, 35-year-old kids or whatever, or people who aren't parents, it's sort of just like a kind of crazy, like, okay, like he's just doing something to go get his missing daughter or his missing son or his killed daughter. I do think the best scene in the movie was tied to what you just said. And I think it's after he loses the kid, the police come and take statements, and it's just him and the wife in the house kind of coming to terms with what has happened she's just furious at him she doesn't want to look at him she doesn't want to be touched by him and it kind of fades out and like you get the idea that that's the end of the relationship i saw a statistic somewhere at some point that like most relationships that lose a child like a child dies or goes missing like they don't stay together and in that one scene you just saw that fractioning and both of them played their roles extremely well i think even in a horror movie like that is kind of the most horrific scene because it feels real it feels like you're watching the end of this union and just something inside both of them die and i I get that i mean we we jump forward a year and we see that cage is alone it all makes sense like it's all logical and i think they do play it well it's just i don't think that it necessarily services the story or services the characters very well like i sort of wish that they had some kind of they kept up some kind of way to look for their son you know like they're both looking for him they're both missing him they're both seeing him everywhere but they're not doing it together they're each doing it on their own and i sort of wish i understand that you know if you break up you don't really necessarily want to be with the other person but i I wish that in terms of this story the story that they were telling that they were still close like maybe they're not married anymore maybe they can't live together anymore but they're still in this thing together it goes back to what we were saying earlier it just takes too long for the mom for sarah wayne callies to really get involved like if she was there because we see him with this kind of madman pepe silvia wall of papers and missing children and things and then we see him walking around the city and stapling things up if you have her there you sort of skip a lot of the nonsense in the middle and you sort of get to have her be a more prevalent prominent helpful character Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, like, I at first was jarred by that time jump because suddenly it was a year later. I was just a little like, oh, that was, that's interesting. Okay. But like you said, you get the gist of exactly what's happened sort of over that year. What I was kind of bummed about is like, we see everything Cage has sort of been up to. Like you said, like, he's got his wall of suspects. He's been, you know, we see him, he's been to the police station every day. They're like, here he is again, you know, another crazy theory thing. And, and, And it's like the mom's done nothing, just nothing to look for her son what is she just like sitting around i i just that bothered me is just that like for that entire year like he's been active and she's just not whatsoever to be quite honest with you it was just sort of very i was just very it was just very jarring to be like we're suddenly a year later and it's gonna be about i don't know i think for me the movie works best when it's pumping up the supernatural ghost story stuff like those elements it's failing when it's doing the marriage counseling metaphor type stuff even though i understand the necessity of some of that i feel like it's too heavy here it's too melodramatic and it takes up too much of the time especially when we have good looking cg vultures flying around the city you know bag lady ghost mama (laughs) um later we get a great scene with a psychic even the wife gets a good little possession moment you know maybe her best scene they're good supernatural stuff that works in this film, and I just wish it was more front and center. Like, I think that's really the main problem, right? Is that the beginning, like, there's sort of supernatural stuff throughout, and it kind of, you know, whether it's the kids seeing stuff or d- making creepy drawings, another movie with creepy kid drawings, thinking things are there or sensing things are there, that stuff works better just because the movie around it makes more sense and works better. But then we get in the middle of the movie, and there's just a disconnect between characters, and I understand why that happens in terms of the events of the movie. The mom waking up and then walking downstairs alone and seeing the scooter go around is cool, but it takes so long for it to develop, 
and it's also so isolated from everything else, it's just sort of strange. But the pacing in this movie is really weird because there's no logical progression of how the characters move from one idea to the next. They just sort of do stuff as the script calls on them to. Uh, Like when they decide to go investigate the other children who went missing on that Halloween. We don't figure out why they're doing that until after they've done it. They're talking about it and talking about missing children on Halloween, but then just jumps to them investigating somebody. We kind of have to fill in the blanks on our own. And I'm not saying like the movie is trying to be mysterious. It's poorly, it's a poorly told story. And that happens a lot. When he goes underground for the first time, it just sort of happens and we have to kind of connect the dots. Anything with the cop who is the most useless character in a genre where all cops in ghost stories are like useless this guy is just there to be there actually that kind of goes for all the peripheral characters and there's just yeah it's just a bunch of loose strands that never really tie together until the third act which makes for a very plotting oddly paced and boring second act i don't know if i'd call it boring it's just there well, I mean, what's weird is that even when the movie is like sort of firing on all cylinders or firing on all cylinders as as much as it can toward the end of the movie, whether like, OK, we have two hours to find our son and they go do a bunch of stuff. And then Gates looks at his watch. He's like, OK, now it's 1015. It's like, wait, that was 15 minutes. Like it felt like it was either no time or like a lot of time. And somehow just like the fact that the only 15 minutes went by and they did all this different stuff. It just felt weird. Like, it, like even like within the movie, when they're paying attention to the time and counting down the two hours left to go to midnight, you know, when time is a factor and when the movie is dependent upon knowing how much time is left, even that doesn't feel right. It still feels off. So it just it's just weird all in all. And they're definitely sort of loading the end of this movie more with all of the stuff that I want that I feel needed to be doled out sort of throughout the entire second act. So, like, the second act's them sort of trying to deal with their relationship. But once they become, like, this team, the movie kind of, like, picks back up again, you know? And it's, like, with Samhain and Celtic Halloween ceremonies, you know, and kind of cool mysterious symbols. And, you know, mystery is starting to come to the surface a little bit. And, and you know, we learned that uh, um, there were... Th- two other kids abducted on the same night at his, as his son. So it's like, why didn't they try and find those parents instead of the ones that disappeared two or three years earlier? And, st- and so it, it seems like there's enough stuff to make like an interesting movie story in and of itself, but they just don't know how to really dole this stuff out, especially when they get to the lady talking about Halloween. It just, it feels like we're getting, like we're stopping the movie to get like a lesson from this teacher about <laughs> like the history of like, Celtic Halloween. The way it is sort of structured and the way that information is given to you, it's just not handled. And I think that scene between them and the teacher, you're talking about like toward the end of the movie, right? Where they're yeah, like, they're like, yeah. I think that's like a really good representation of the problems that this movie has because you look at her and she's like playing the part and she's like, this is the history. This is what we're doing. And then he's just, he's like a year ago, our son was taken. And she's like, look, I'm just a teacher from Bayside. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. And then goes back into like telling her or telling them the lore. It's like the movie wants to be like creepy and moody and atmospheric and then shift tones and just become like playful for a little bit. And then shift tones back, and then, like, it's it's a weird time for a joke. And I think the joke is kind of funny a little bit. I mean, something that's sort of hacky and you can sort of see coming, in all respects, does not belong there. Keep her committed. Have her sort of send them on their way. Have her be this, like, moody, creepy, just weirdo girl. We get that sort of sense from the people in the underground, like the blind guy and everything like that. You know, make her something like that, where she's just fully committed to the part, instead of being like, Hey, look, I'm just a teacher. I don't know what you want from me. Our son was abducted last year on Halloween. I'm sorry to hear that. For almost a year after he disappeared, there was nothing. Then two days ago, we began to hear his voice. Moments when we could see him. I'm just a school teacher from Bayside. We get together here every Halloween for fun. I'm truly sorry, but I don't know anything about your son. I actually enjoyed that gag, but then they immediately went back on it by having that character info dump. It was like, what was the point of any of that? And that's, again, kind of my problem with the whole movie is what is the point of any of this? Who are you? Why are you here? (laughs) There's so many cliched characters. They're used in such a way that none of it matters that it almost feels like this movie was generated by like a random horror movie plot generator or something. (laughs) You know, like missing kid, ghosts, 
to cop on the case to psychic to uh, researching old material to druids to witch to ghosts underworld to happy like it just it goes from beat to beat without taking us on the adventure we're just watching these characters do it and we don't have time to feel anything outside of that one scene that i mentioned there's very little time for me or reason for me to care whether or not they save this kid other than just hey that's nick cage he's the main character hope he doesn't die like the movie's just not focused enough that it's trying to do too many things and even the moments that i think should work really well like for instance when the sun goes missing i mean mike we've seen in recent movies like we've seen in left behind we've seen in other movies like uh, you know other similar movies there's like a real like moment of panic left behind is a garbage movie for garbage people and it's a terrible terrible movie <laughs> but when the rapture happens like those 3 minutes or whatever are actually like kind of cool like they're really competently yeah. well made and like it's exciting and sort of scary and you don't like you know what's happening but you also like don't know what's happening here you know the kid goes missing and cage is like freaking out i don't know if it's the editing i don't know if it's the shot i don't know what it is it just doesn't work as well and this should be like the moment before we know it a cop's like go home and he just runs home mm-hmm. and his wife is like why are you here and we're like why are you there like what is going on the problem with the scene of his son disappearing, it, it felt like from the beginning the problem was with the writing because I would have believed Cage if he had like something good to react to. You know what I mean? The way it goes down is like his son literally vanishes almost like he's raptured, you know, like he's holding his hand and then he's gone. It's not like someone snatches him. It's not like there's any real lead up. He doesn't get lost in a crowd. They're just buying ice cream and then he's gone. And so Cage can't, his character can't really explain what happened in a way. So it's hard for him, in my eyes, it's hard for the character to emote properly in a lot of ways. Like There's just too much sort of confusion around. I mean, it maybe it would have worked better if they were alone and the kid disappeared with him or they weren't in a crowd or because it just makes me feel like he should have been snatched by someone that it shouldn't have been supernatural or that it even was i don't know i just have a problem more on a basic level with the way the scene is sort of created as opposed to how the people are acting it out because like the cop is like the worst written stuff like i've ever (laughs) seen in cage club you know he's like what do you mean your son's missing do you live close by? Maybe you ran home. Like, I don't care about your son, you know? Like, that was deplorable stuff. Like, I think that it happens like that so that it can set up the rest of the movie. Because if they're just alone and he gets kidnapped, or, you know, he just disappears, then there's, like, nothing for him to go on. Like, you sort of need Cage to sort of spiral down into madness, right? Find this reason to go digging and to look up other missing kids and to sort of compile this directory and figure out when kids are missing and all this different stuff. I feel like if he's just, if they're just walking down an alley and he's gone, there's not like a reason, there's, there's no justification for him to do anything. So I agree with you that it doesn't really work in the crowd, but I think it sort of has to be in the crowd to tell the movie that the rest of the movie actually winds up being. They also miss a massive opportunity here, and this is kind of why I say it, it feels like it's created by some sort of random plot generator is because it misses really logical things that would make sense to be in the movie. For example, the whole time this kid is holding a camera, later on Nick Cage goes back and watches the film. Like, he's been re-watching, because he misses it's his last, you know, the last thing he has with, of his kid. And he's yep. watching the film and watching it, and we expect that he's going to see something, a clue, and this is what's going to set it off, like a silhouette right. behind the kid or a shadow. There's even, he keeps watching him and the kid in a mirror, like looking in a mirror, but that just doesn't happen. I wrote down, the clue's got to be on the tape, right? Mm-hmm. And then I just wrote down, haunted tape! Like, it's just, like, the yeah. whole, the whole, like, point of this movie is the things you know are actually channels for the, your child who's missing to talk to you. This iPad, it's just the drawing that the kid made, but now he's in the drawing. And it's like, oh, that's kind of cool, but, like, you're you're going so hard on the genre convention and trying to make it be like, you know, you've seen this before, he's going to find this clue, he's going to have the eureka moment, it's going to lead him to this, to this, to this. But no, it's just, he walks away, and then just, like, a ghost appears. And it's just, oh, okay, that's interesting. Like, it's it's a choice that they made, but I don't know that there's a reason for them to make that choice. You know, the random movie generator is, like, <laughs> I buy that theory, because it just feels like it can't commit. Like, it's got cool ideas, and you can sort of take, like, any two or three of these and make 
a really good movie. And especially this thing with the video, like I was like, okay, the kid even gets the ghost on tape. The time they show Cage watching the video, he stops watching it before that moment would occur. If he had just thought to take that to the cops or show it to a specialist or watch the whole freaking video, maybe he would have seen the bag lady ghost or something or, yeah, an extra clue. And that frustrated me beyond belief. The fact that they clearly were setting up like this tape and it kind of doesn't become useful whatsoever. I mean, he gets one or two images into the past or into the ghost world or somewhere beyond, right, where he sees the cabin from a couple hundred years ago, but that just didn't make any sense to me. It just felt like poltergeist time, time to, you know, look through the television screen. Joe, you mentioned something in the uh, about how the pacing was messed up, and you specifically mentioned the editing. The editing in this movie is garbage. Holy <laughs> shit. It's like it was edited by two different people, and one of them was editing a movie, and one of them was editing a Nine Inch Nails video from 1996. (laughs) The movie is both thematically and narratively and just stylistically just all over the place, and it's hard to really get behind anything, because I don't even think it's like being edited by two people. I feel like it's being written by two people. Like, there's just so many things going on here, and nothing lines up with, like, what comes before it or what comes after it. And sometimes, like, you have basically Cage and Sarah Wayne Callies experiencing the same thing in different places in back-to-back scenes. It's just weird. It, I, I can't describe it any more than, like, it's just weird. Like, it's not well done. It wouldn't shock me if this was initially, like, a mockbuster version of Insidious that just got pulled off the shelf and changed slightly. It's, like, beat for beat a worse version of that movie. Yeah, it feels a lot like those current crop of new horror type of case case file horror right the conjuring and things like that where it's uh kind of based on a true story or you know mysterious happenings to real people another issue though i had with this is sort of the ghost's motivation i didn't really see why it would kill the psychic or cause harm to humans or adults or do things like that because it just seemed like it wanted children and stuff so i don't i was even having issues understanding the threat to a large degree that was a problem too yeah the ghost rules are iffy like the ghost goes out of its way on this night where it's supposed to be kidnapping children still if i'm not mistaken like it kidnaps three children every halloween but it also goes to kill people who are just helping nick cage research (laughs) the ghost but never tries to kill nick cage who is actively searching for and hunting her down on days where the ghost I feel shouldn't be active, like non-Halloween days, right? Like, because we skip to a year later and it's sort of two or three days before Halloween and, you know, his professor friend, the lady at the university, is like researching stuff for him and the ghost pushes her out of a window and she dies and it's like they hire the psychic to come talk to the haunted house they're living in now and the ghost like burns her alive from the inside out. It's just bizarre. (laughs) I mean, and talk about a, a scene with a great payoff that doesn't earn it. We bring this psychic in about a minute and a half before we get a really cool scene. We don't get to know her. We don't learn anything from her. It's just something there for body count. And it's it's a pretty cool scene, to be fair, but, like, movie didn't really earn it. No, and and to me it felt like a joke. I guess in the way the line later with the teacher about, you know, I'm just a teacher, how that was supposed to be part of the comedy, to me it felt like, okay, the movie's going to bring in a psychic, we're going to get to the bottom of this, we're going to get on with it, and then, oh, the psychic dies, like, immediately. Like, that was no help. Like, now what do we do? Like, okay, this is way stronger than we thought. But it just played off as a joke to me, as psychics come in every time and save the day, but not in our movie. Cage and Sarawine Callies have, like, they get confirmation that there is sort of some spirit there, but really all it does in the movie is put Cage under the suspicion of the cops, which <laughs> that, and that ultimately leads to nothing either. Like, they're just like, weird things keep happening around you, like, I'm gonna keep my eye on you, don't leave town. It's like, okay. But then, like, nothing comes from that. Like, I mean, later, I, I, I guess that could set up the fact that when he gets hurt, like, they get in that car accident, they're like, we're gonna call the cops, and he runs away. Like, is that way? I, I don't know. It's just strange. Like, the ghost is sort of riding up this body count to a degree. How great would it be if the ghost was trying to frame Nick Cage for all this and, like, put him behind bars? Like, if it was that clever and smart. Like, I mean, that's an entirely other movie altogether, but... It's a real making a murderer situation. I'd watch that. If that was this, like, I would not be upset if we found out at the end, like, the ghost framed Nick Cage and he wound up in prison for life. Well, that's basically Sinister, which is another movie I feel this cribbed off of pretty heavily too 
this movie is just like, that's a cool movie. Like, let's take some stuff from that. There's like one scene of possession, like the mom gets possessed and then she starts cutting herself. Like, that's just from like another movie. You know, like, they're just taking like everything out of like a horror grab bag and just throwing it at the wall and just seeing what sticks. And like a few things stick. But they're not great, and they're all jumbled up, and it's all just—it's like a mix—it's like a mixtape. It's just like it's almost like what we were talking about with National Treasure, but in a bad way. Where like if you're bored, if you don't like a joke, if you don't like one thing that's going on, just like wait two minutes and something brand new is going to happen. Like here, it's like if you don't like this kind of horror movie, wait two minutes to be a completely different movie, and you can just sort of maybe enjoy that. Yeah, and for me, the stuff that's working best is the stuff that's more over-the-top, the campier stuff, like the blind bum with the dreadlocks, who we'll find out he guards the nexus to the other world, and, you know, possibly purgatory, or I don't know, he's some type of gatekeeper figure. The bag-headed kids, right, like the really old trick-or-treating kids that were taken, you know, in the 1800s and the 1900s and stuff like that. I think the imagery works for me best in this movie. Not so much like the talky-talky, but the looky-looky. Is this movie supposed to be, in a way, like a parody, kind of? We get the scene where there's the autopsy happening on the girl who's burned from the inside, on the psychic. The guy is cutting her down the chest to open up to look inside, You're sort of expecting her to sit up, right? Or do something crazy or come back to life or who knows. But her mouth just opens and he's just like, oh, that's weird. And closes her mouth. And then we cut away. It's almost like the movie's like, hey, you know these cliches? Well, we're going to throw them at you and then just twist it a little bit. I don't know if it's trying to be too smart or if it's trying to be like a parody. I don't know. But whatever it's trying to do, it's not working. Yeah, I was expecting, like, the little ash that comes out of her mouth to go into the autopsy guy, and, like, yes. now there's a physical embodiment of this ghost who can stop Nick Cage. Uh, yep. No, it's just so that, <laughs> so that we can see that she got burned from the inside out, and then they tell Nick Cage that, so we find that anyway. Three more minutes of movie are filled up. <laughs> and that is so crazy, too, because, like, we'll find out she was burned at the stake, but does that give her, like, fire powers? I didn't get that, you know what I mean? Like, that wasn't necessarily, like, her mode of killing, right? Like, she would push people out. If, I can understand if, like, she was a fire starter and, you know, setting buildings on fire and things like that, but no. Like, <laughs> it almost feels like, oh, we wrote her to burn this person from the inside out, so later let's just change it so that she was burned at the stake so we have some kind of, like, fire connection or something like that. Uh, I, I feel like the movie isn't a parody. Like, it feels like it's really genuinely trying to pull this kind of stuff off and it's just failing there's two things especially i'd like to bring up quickly because they did stand out as homage and it's what leads me to believe that this is not a parody early on there's a shot of the boy riding his razor scooter around his apartment and it's shot (laughs) just like danny in the shining and it's clearly supposed to be some kind of homage and it's just like you know dude your apartment is way too small a razor is not a big wheel (laughs) and this is you are not kubrick and there's like one or two other things later on in the film that are like oh that's clearly an homage to this or okay later the psychic's dress is like the carpet from the shining it's like just this very high fashion sort of it just stands out from the rest of the film and i'm like okay that's a touch you know like that just let me say like this isn't for fun like this guy is trying to like actually do his thing make his art like this is what he wants to do i agree with that and i do kind of want to give him credit because i don't i can't think of anything and i'm sure i've seen it before but i think cage you know crossing basically over the river sticks and into hell and rescuing his kids at the end or his kid at the end and bringing back those other two kids I think that's kind of, like, a lot of the visuals there, like, it's not necessarily wholly original, but I think that's way more creative and way more original than the rest of the movie. And so I just wish that whoever came up with that sequence was able to do the rest of the movie. That we see so many other things that we've seen elsewhere, you still sort of have the sense that you've seen it before, maybe, or seen stuff similar to it, but it's also unique enough or not overdone enough where you're like, oh, this is actually interesting. Like him crossing the bridge over foggy, lightning-infused, whatever, nothingness, finding all those kids and just brushing his hand through their hands, and then actually finds his son and finds the other two kids that brought there with the son. I don't want to say it's great, but it's great in comparison to the rest of the movie. And I just wish that that sort of excitement or intrigue or level of filmmaking was present for the first hour and 15 minutes and not just the last 15 or 20 minutes. 
yeah, it's great when it happens in Insidious. It's okay when it happens in this movie. <laughs> I do agree. I like the stuff in the house. I like the infinite nothingness of children. But it, it never takes its time at any point. We're there for a good 45 seconds, minute, and then we're out onto this completely drab, black backdrop and a bridge and that's where the entire (laughs) climax takes place and it's so disappointing not just because the cgi here is atrocious and it's again edited like a 90s music video but there's never any stakes we never think anyone's really in trouble um there's no emotional aspect to it there's no again we don't even know the rules of this ghost why doesn't she just throw him off the side like nothing really makes sense and again i never found myself caring very much and that was a big problem with this climax Yeah, I feel like they definitely rushed this stuff, and it's what they needed to be the entire third act, is, like, him in the ghost world, like, looking for his kid, or something, you know? Like, this is the good stuff, and they're rushing it, and I'm just sort of startled, like, this is the second time he's gone under New York City and found something incredible. The first time in National Treasury, he finds a freaking treasure of the gods, and now he finds, like, a portal to the afterlife. It's just amazing what you can find under New York City in a movie. But ultimately, yeah, I, like I I said earlier i just i love the imagery here but i just don't feel they're working it right and to it it's it's advantage you know I, it could have been cool if he if he sort of time traveled back in time a little bit through the ages or experienced more of her backstory while he was in the cabin or something thought that witch fight is just very weak and quick and i wanted him to you know fight the witch a little better I, he fought the witch better when it was a demon in season of the witch you know at least they Hustled, right, right, you know, and he got some blows in and stuff. But yeah, for as cool the idea is, they kind of can't execute it. It's a bummer because um, I would have given it to him, you know, if they could have really pulled it off here at the end. And you know, I, it is some of the better stuff of the film, but it's just a shame that it, it just comes too little, too late. And sorry, you can't set up your ghost villain who murders children as a sympathetic character. <laughs> Yeah, by but no they means. They do. They try. I mean, they they try to do it. I mean, who well, knows? the way they do it is that the townsfolk don't just burn her; they burn her children as well, right? Like that's how they. And not only that, the townsfolk seem to be inflicted by some type of scurvy or something. I don't know. They have a fever, so they blame the quote unquote witch in the woods. To, you know, it's all her fault. And I think by executing the children too, you're supposed to be okay. Like, yeah, she is kind of justified for what she's doing. I. I don't think that makes it right per se, but I think that's what the movie thinks. So now, what do you guys make of the ending? Because Cage rescues his kid and brings him home, and then the kid suddenly remembers nothing from the past year. And he's just like, oh, we were out at the, the fair, and it was so much fun, and oh, there's my hat, I forgot my hat, I thought I lost my hat. They just sort of look at each other, right? Like, he doesn't remember anything, and they're like, oh, it's weird. Like, are they going to get back together now? Like, Chris, in your research, when you found that, like, parents lost a kid, were there any stats about when that kid comes back from the dead and then do the parents get back together? Parents always get back together uh, when that happens. Um, Also, they they usually, what this movie didn't do is they usually take in the other two missing ghost children that they bring back as well (laughs) and start a ghost orphanage for the sequel. Yeah, I wasn't sure if we were going to get a bit of like a John Archer adoption there at the end, you know, (laughs) and just take in some more of these refugee just face waterfall. And then there's like a oh like there like there's the mid credit sequence which we haven't really had a, a lot in Cage Club. We've had stuff like during the credits, most notably I think probably in Snake Eyes. I mean, we've had sort of weird endings, but here we just cut back to the... Who is it? Is that the librarian? Or who, who is it that they're, that they're the crows or the, the vultures are eating or picking at? That, that's his lady professor friend from the university. The librarian friend, okay. Yeah. But, like, didn't they take her body away? I guess not. <laughs> I guess they haven't gotten around to it yet. No one reported her dead. <laughs> so what's the point of that scene? The way I took it was that, you know, throughout the film, the kid would see these vulture birds, and then later Cage would see them, and they, for some reason, they have it. That's another reason. I don't know what the birds are supposed to represent as far as the witch, but they mean that she's kind of around. We never get a reasoning as to what the connection between her and vultures are, but at the end of the movie, the vultures are still sort of flying around New York City, and, and they go to her body, and they're picking at it, 
and they're picking at it. And to me, I get the sense that the body is now alive with the witch's essence or something. Like the witch is in the body and the movie ends to a possible sequel. Which contradicts the movie's own rules saying that she can only come out on Halloween. But hey, well, I mean, whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> if those were even the only rules, maybe in the next one we'll find out she can appear on St. Patrick's Day as well. Who knows? Oh, man. There are a couple of little side notes that I had about this movie, and then I'll open it up to you guys. Number one, apparently, according to one extra in this movie, Nicolas Cage got so mad on set one day of shooting that he kicked a prop pumpkin. So I don't know what led to that frustration, but I would just like to see him basically punting a prop pumpkin. That'd be kind of cool. The director, Ulai Idel, who I've never heard of before, directed an episode of Twin Peaks. So we have another cage connection to Twin Peaks. He directed one episode in the middle of season two, which means it was probably one of the garbage filler episodes. Or just one, you know, where somebody's recreating the Civil War. Who knows? (laughs) You know, one of the ones that's not great, sort of, that drags the second season out. But I thought it was kind of cool. We haven't really had a lot of cage connections to Twin Peaks since sort of the early to mid-90s. But that's back. And the only other thing I wanted to say is that this movie actually won an award. There's something apparently called the Joey Awards, which seems very appropriate. (laughs) That apparently honors young actors in Canada. And so this movie won the Joey for the best actor in a feature film supporting slash principal role age seven to nine. So a very specific category. <laughs> but Jack Fulton won for the role of Charlie, beating out Jack Fulton himself for Closet Monster and then two other people from other movies I do not know. But I just like that there's four people nominated for this, and two of those four people were just the same person. And he wound up winning for this movie. So we haven't had a lot of award-winning Cage films lately. All these straight-to-DVD movies are just sort of too bad for people to even... Or too uneventful for people to even pay attention to. But here, one Canadian film organization gave this kid an award. So that's all that really matters. I feel like that's like those um, Guinness World Record hunters who try to do like the most obscure stuff imaginable. <laughs> like, look how far I can flick this watermelon seed off of my ear. No one else is going for it, so I have the world record. It's like, that is the most obscure, narrowed-down <laughs> award I could possibly... Did it also include like wearing a pirate costume throughout the entire movie? Oh, yes, I forgot, I forgot that qualifier. Yeah. And also wearing an, a drawn-on eye patch was part of it, too, because like, the other pirate costume, that was another category, too. Okay, all right. <laughs> I don't want to come down too hard on a little kid, but it does kind of sound like like a participation award to a degree, <laughs> you know? Like, he was all right, but I mean, like, there's better creepy kids out there, you know? I thought he was good, but not great or anything, but... James Harrison would absolutely make him give that award back. <laughs> well, I Fourth feel jokes. like... I feel like what this movie sort of did, like, where it came from, is that in Canada, they Canada just has, like, lots of money that they throw at movies that feature Canadian actors. And so I feel like the Vancouver, these Joey Awards, only honor Canadian actors. And so he was just part of the production because they filmed in Toronto. I don't know. I'm just trying to make excuses. I don't know if that's necessarily you know relevant or helpful or interesting, but that's just maybe why, I don't know, just adding more to the specificity. Oh, yeah, I'm not trying to punch down. I don't think the kid was necessarily bad. Like, he wasn't great. He was just a kid actor. He was fine. But that's just a stupid award. I tell you this, I, I wish the kid was haunting this movie a little more. You know, like, it was kind of fun when Cage saw him on a bus and had to run the bus down. And, like, you see that scene in lots of movies. But, I, you know, I thought Cage was making it work and stuff. And so I was like, all right, where's the this boy kind of, he just even kind of disappears. I just need a more ghost boy. I have no idea how much this movie cost to make. I can't find that information. So I'm guessing they paid zero dollars for it. (laughs) And this was a pretty bare-bones DVD as well. There wasn't any behind-the-scenes featurettes. There was no audio commentary. There really is was nothing else to go on. But you said there was one notable thing before the oh. movie, right? <laughs> yeah, so one of the trailers was of the Cage film Rage, a.k.a. Tokarev. So, I mean, there was sort of a foreboding warning <laughs> as they started up this feature. It's always good to advertise a straight-to-DVD movie from the year before that wasn't very good. So, hooray, pay the ghost. Chris, any last thoughts, any notes that you had on the movie that we didn't get to yet? Uh, No, by the end I was just writing down movies that I would recommend people watch if they were going Mm. to watch Pay the Ghost. Give us three. Okay, Uh, Insidious. Okay. Um, A movie called The Tall Man that actually the guy who plays the blind guy uh, in this movie is in. 
Uh, okay. It's a movie that you'll look at the cover and say, ooh, Jessica Biel, ooh, like a guy in a hood. This movie doesn't look like it could possibly be good. It's actually very good. And also, because of that actor, Stephen McCaddy, uh, I wrote down a movie called Pontypool, which uh, is not yeah. quite as related. It's not about scary kids, but he's just in that, and he's great in it, and that's an awesome horror movie. Those the radio three, station? That, it is. Yeah, yep. I really like that one. Yeah, so there's three movies that, while I was wishing this movie would end, I, uh, I just scribbled down. And uh, so, yeah, there's three recommends now that there's no more Cage left. Cool, I guess. That's such a sad moment. Uh, Mike, any other notes or thoughts or anything about this movie that we didn't get to yet? Not so much. I think we covered most of it. You know, like I said, I think there, there was definitely a good movie in here somewhere, maybe a great movie even, but it's just it's just overloaded. You know, it's just a jumble and yeah, there's just, just too much happening to really get a grip. You know, so believe it or not, in certain scenes at certain moments, like I did actually get chills and stuff, right? But I kind of felt they were sort of superficial chills because like they were just because of the filmmaking quality, you know, like. I feel like I get tricked a lot these days because a lot of bad movies look really good, you know? Like, I kind of brought that up a couple times lately with these more direct-to-DVD releases. It's just, you can make a really good-looking movie, and that kind of fools people into thinking it's actually a good script and story (laughs) and all that kind of other stuff. And I feel like, to a degree, I I almost got fooled with this one (laughs) because I did like the way it looks. I like a lot of the art design and things like that. But yeah, I just, I don't think I could really watch this one again anytime soon. And with that, Cage Club kind of draws to a close. I mean, this we are caught up now officially with all the Cage movies that are out. He's got three more at least, if not more, that are coming out this year. So we will be back for sure in May for a couple of movies coming out then and then later in the year. We also have a couple other special episodes coming out in the next few weeks or months. Still not sure of the production schedule of these. But this sort of ends the three-a-week release schedule that has dominated our lives the past 26 weeks. So I hope you've enjoyed Cage Club up to this point. I know that I have. Uh, We sort of got a little burnt out here at the end because there's been a lot of less-than-great movies kind of in a row, but we sort of saw that coming. But thank you, Chris, for joining us for three of these 78. You've been here for a great movie, you've been here for a fun movie, and you were here for this. So, you know, thank you. It's been a ride. Thank you, guys, and uh, congratulations. It's coming to an end. There's light at the end of this cagey tunnel. Mike, any last thoughts on us doing 78 episodes Uh, of this? It's kind of incredible. (laughs) Looking back, I'm sort of like, wow, did we really do that? Yeah, we did that. I kind of feel like we've earned a bit of bragging rights at this point, too, you know? like yeah. We're a bit of like a cage expert, perhaps. Um, I feel like I've retained a lot of this crazy stuff that we've discovered along the way, and the initial run of Cage Club, maybe we could call it season one, perhaps? Sure. But, uh, yeah, this this run is done, and it's it's been great, and I look forward to the future of the show. And season two, whatever season two may be. So for all things Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, all 78 of them. Follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Chris Mattiello, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Cage Club.